Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Martin Siegel, author of Judgment and Mercy, The Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs. Martin Siegel practices and teaches law in Houston. After clerking for Judge Kaufman, he served as an assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan and on the staff of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Houston Chronicle, and legal journals. As we mark the 70th anniversary of the Rosenberg executions, we spoke to Martin about their story as well as that of the young and ambitious judge who sentenced them to death, Judge Irving Robert Kaufman. We learned that in the decades after that fateful decision, Judge Kaufman transformed into one of the most progressive judges of his time. And Martin also shares with us his and his fellow clerks' experiences working for the judge. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Great to be here. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you about your new book, Judgment and Mercy, The Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs. This June 19th of this year marks the 70th anniversary of the Rosenberg executions by electric chair for the crime of atomic espionage. Tell us a bit about their story, as well as the subject of your book, The Young and Ambitious Judge Who Sentenced Them to Death, Judge Irving Robert Kaufman. Sure, thank you. Um, So so the Rosenberg story um, came to public attention in 1951, really 1950, when they were first charged, or Julius was first charged. The trial was 1951. Um, and they were the latest and by far the most well-known figures in a sort of growing and larger uh, espionage ring uh, that included a number of people in the United States and also uh, a prominent physicist in England who, who was apprehended and prosecuted and jailed in England, a man named Klaus Fuchs, who was uh, he's sort of not all that well known today unless you really have burrowed into this, this sort of slice of history, um, but he was by far the most valuable member of this espionage ring to the Soviets. Um, He was an actual physicist and and knew a great deal more about the atomic bomb than any other member um, and provided more valuable information to the Russians. Uh, By contrast, uh, the Rosenbergs and uh, Ethel Rosenberg's brother, David Greenglass, who was the main witness against them, did not know all that much about the atomic bomb. David Greenglass had been a machinist at Los Alamos, which was an entirely random sort of assignment. Um, he had he was not terribly well educated. He had a poor scientific background, but he was stationed there at Los Alamos and, and he was a committed communist, as uh, was his brother-in-law Julius and his sister Ethel. And they had been for many years. And they decided with this sort of surprising assignment to put their uh, beliefs into action, so to speak. And so they persuaded David to bring back whatever information he could about what was going on there at Los Alamos to New York. And at first it was the names of scientists and and things of that nature. But eventually David Greenglass brought back and also a courier was sent out to New Mexico who who also brought back on a separate ship information about the town bomb, primarily a sketch uh, of the lens mold, which was a key component of the bomb. Although the sketch itself, as you would expect from a not terribly educated machinist, was crude and hand-drawn and there is there is debate to this day over how valuable that information was uh, to the Soviets. 
Now, unbeknownst to, of course, any of those people, and unbeknownst to Judge Kaufman, who presided over their trial, who we'll talk about in a minute, that's the subject of the book, the United States had broken the Soviet's code uh, during World War II in something called Project Venona. Um, and that's what led them to the arrest, to identify and arrest this espionage ring. Um, that's how Julius and Ethel came to be suspects and were arrested, although there was precious little information about Ethel. There, there wasn't more information about Julius. Um, and again, that's something that to this day is debated. Uh, the evidence against, at trial against Julius came from, as I said, David Greenglass, but some other sources as well. Um, another uh, couple of couriers testified, uh, sort of well-known at the time, woman who'd been part of the Communist Party, became almost a mini celebrity, Elizabeth Bentley, testified. And there were a number of minor witnesses all of them reinforcing the case against Julius and his role in this, this conspiracy. The only evidence against Ethel came from her brother, David Greenglass, who testified that when he brought those notes back from Los Alamos, she had typed them up, made them legible, and then Julius had passed them along to his Russian contacts, who, by the way, was also identified, but he fled, or sorry, identified and indicted, but he fled to the Soviet Union. And so that was the sole evidence at trial from David Greenglass and his wife, Ruth Greenglass, against Ethel. Um, and in the 1990s, David admitted that that had been perjured, that he had essentially made up this story of Ethel typing in order to protect his own wife, who was also involved in this conspiracy, Ruth Greenglass. He insisted that she not be charged. But, but as trial approached in March of 1951, the government really leaned hard on him, knowing it had very little evidence against Ethel, and got him to concoct this story. So they were convicted in 1951, and then we come to the second part of your question, which is Judge Kaufman. Uh, he sentenced them to death. He presided over their trial. Let me tell you a bit about Judge Kaufman, and, and he's the subject of my book. I, I was a law clerk for Judge Kaufman, one of his last two from 1991 to 1992. He died during the time we worked for him, and that's what gave rise to this book. In 1951, he'd only been on the bench about 16 months, um, and he was one. He was the second youngest judge in America, a federal judge at that time. Extremely ambitious. Of course, one doesn't get to be a federal judge in probably, it's fair to say, the most important federal trial bench in America, New York City, at that time anyway, without being uh, both accomplished and uh, extremely ambitious and political. He, he was a member of the Democratic Party. He'd raised money the Democratic Party. He was sort of a protege of a number of important political and legal figures. J. Edgar Hoover uh, was prominent among them. He'd come to know J. Edgar Hoover when he was a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Tom Clark, who was Truman's Attorney General, was a close friend. And Clark was probably more than anyone else responsible for putting him on the bench. His Kaufman's background was very much like the Rosenbergs, uh, which I, I think is something that fed into his psyche when it came time to decide what the punishment should be for their betrayal uh, of the United States. Uh, he'd grown up quite poor. Um, it, it's sort of the classic Jewish American rags to riches in one generation story. His parents were immigrants. He was born six years after they got to America, lived on the Lower East Side, eventually moved to Jewish Harlem, educated at Fordham. But, but just a, a truly impressive sort of self-made success, um, came to public prominence as a prosecutor in the 1930s, and then in the 1940s represented some prominent in private practice media figures, and also Milton Berle. Um, nice client to have, but if you're trying to impress people like Tom Clark and J. Edgar Hoover, you can arrange private audiences after shows and benefits with Milton Berle, which, which Judge Kaufman did. So... So fast forward to the Rosenberg case, it was a case he wanted. Um, he wanted to try that case. And back then, today, it's a more random assignment system. Back then, there was more play in the joints 
for both the prosecutors to kind of arrange things so that they were likely to get a certain uh, get a certain judge, and for judges themselves who wanted certain cases to reach out and get them. Um, and Judge Kaufman did that with the help of a family friend and a sort of protege of his, Roy Cohn. So he gets the case and he he uh, fully appreciates, I think, its um, advantages to him as a vehicle for notoriety and for potential advancement. During the trial, he intervenes in a way that seemed to favor the government, although in his defense, uh, that, that was a point on appeal and the appellate courts uh, denied that it was anything unusual or outside the usual discretion of a federal trial judge. He also, and this wasn't revealed until the 1970s, conducted secret ex parte discussions with the prosecution, um, the prosecution team, mostly Roy Cohn, during the trial. And although it is, it is true that that was probably not completely uncommon in those days, I think other judges may have done the same. It was a, it was a less formal system then. Nonetheless, even by the rules in place then, it was a violation of legal ethics. Um, and it's certainly something that today, looking back on it, we can see compromised his neutrality. The, he's also, of course, well known for sentencing the Rosenbergs to death. So why, why did he do that? Um, in the book, I argue uh, a couple of factors. He, he was extremely anti-communist as a protege of Hoover and also a disciple of Fordham. He was a product of both Fordham College and Fordham Law School. Um, and that was a, a fairly conservative place uh, in the 1930s and 40s when Judge Kaufman, or well, I should say 20s and 30s when he was there, but he, he remained sort of connected to the institution to some degree. I think that influenced his thinking. And, and the other factor that, it, uh, aside from his personal ambition that, that I really argued influenced the result is, is just this, this special disdain he had for the Rosenbergs because they, they, as I said, started out where he did in life really almost exactly the same place, Lower East Side. Julius was actually raised in Jewish Harlem, as Kaufman had been a little bit later. But, you know, America had been so good to Irving Kaufman. Um, he'd succeeded so thoroughly here. He'd, he'd amassed prosperity. He'd achieved uh, this sort of political and legal prominence. And I think when he came across these two people with his background, who could have at least arguably succeeded as he did, but who viewed the whole enterprise as corrupt, um, and not worthy of patriotic support. I think he saw their betrayal in, in special and very personal terms. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. In, in your book, you mentioned that there was a Gallup poll in February of 1953, which showed public approval of the death sentence at 76%. That's right. That's it wasn't right. an unusual sentence in that it, it, was, it was approved by the public. And that, it was that approved, widely approved, yeah, yeah. Um, in the 60s and 70s. What happened then? Right, right. Well, right. So to go back to your, to the first part of it, um, in, in 53, you know, and, and certainly in 51, even more so when they were tried, it's, it's the Korean War, it's McCarthyism. Unfortunately for the Rosenbergs, they, they their offense was judged, you know, uh, assessed by a jury and then judged in terms of the sentence by Judge Kaufman at probably the worst time in terms of the climate. And, and because of his Personal blind spots, I think, Judge Kaufman might have been one of the worst judges they could have drawn, although, frankly, I'm not sure any judge would have been terribly sympathetic then. Right, but the Rosenberg lawyer made an interesting argument for mercy um, when he was arguing about the sentence a week after the conviction. He said, and he repeated this argument um, about a year and a half later when he was arguing for reduction in sentence, he said, who knows but that history may turn. Um, and he, what he's referring to is that in the war, we've been allies with Russia. And of course, by 1951 and 53, it was a very different time. But he was making the point to the judge that, you know, I'm not sure how well this is going to look in the light of history, because who knows if we're not 
allies later in time, or if this Cold War has died down somewhat, and that proved to be prophetic. Uh, he was a lawyer who, Rosenberg's lawyer was deficient in lots of ways, and, and a lot of people have said that, not just me, but his his arguments for mercy, especially the second time around in 1952, were, were eloquent and compelling. And he was right that history turned, not that we became allies exactly with the Soviet Union, but by the late 60s and 70s, that, that sort of atomic terror that was on the front page of newspapers during the Korean War, there was, there was true and real and legitimate fear of an atomic war. Um, and so the Rosenbergs were seen as arch, arch fiends for having given away our most powerful weapon. That was gone. You know, it's, it's now the late 60s and 70s, and people are used to the Soviets having the bomb. They're used to this concept of mutually assured destruction. We're even beginning to get into the world of detente by the 1970s. And, you know, the left had changed by then. There was something called the new left um, in the late 60s and 70s. And they weren't, they weren't as sort of obsessed with the internecine battles of the Communist Party and Stalinism versus you know, other flavors of Bolshevism versus the more progressive, you know, mainstream left, all of that, had, a lot of that had faded. Um, instead, when they charged that the Rosenbergs had been framed, a lot of people believed it. And the reason they believed it is because there was a whole new slate of government misconduct to base that argument on. For example, lies in Vietnam, you know, by the late 60s and 70s, sort of the official line of the government in Vietnam is shown to be deceptive and hollow. And then there's Watergate. Um, and so by the mid-70s, to say that the government might lie and frame somebody doesn't seem as preposterous as when the Rosenberg's defenders, who were mostly communists, well, I, I, that's not fair. I mean, their hardcore defenders in, in the early 50s were communists, but there were a lot of people who just objected to the sentences who were not communists, of course. But by the late 60s and the 70s, um, there's a little more credence to that argument. And the fact that we've broken the Soviet's code and we have this sort of information that's secret that we couldn't reveal at trial... That's not public yet either. And the Rosenberg's defenders continue to maintain their innocence. And a, a big catalyst was that their sons, they had two small children, um, 10 and I believe six at the time of the executions, who were obviously very sympathetic. Um, but they, after the executions, they sort of disappeared. And they were raised by a different family. Their name was not Rosenberg. It was Mirpol after the family that took them in. And by the late 60s, early 70s, they make a kind of personal decision they are going to come forward and say who they are and make it their cause to clear their parents' names. And they were compelling figures, articulate, smart, um, you know, sort of good-looking and, and, and just hard to dismiss. And they, they began to hammer away at the case and say, you know, look, there was only one witness and this witness was biased. He was on trial for his own life, trying to save his skin. And they, they poked holes and other little bits of evidence here and there. there. There's a book that came out, I think in 65, called Invitation to an Inquest by two sort of left-leaning science freelance writers who, who did a truly deep dive into the evidence and brought out some contradictions and other things. And so this public campaign really takes hold and there are rallies all over the country and there are newspaper articles, there are headlines like, you know, the Rosenbergs retried. And Rosenberg's, you know, on trial again, 35 years later. And, and these are in major news outlets. And then something happens that really throws gas on the fire, which is revelation of Judge Kaufman's misconduct. One of, the, one of the first Freedom of Information Act requests in the early 70s, after some amendments to FOIA made it easier to get information from the government, was from the Rosenberg's kids. And they began to get these snippets of information from FBI files suggesting that Judge Kaufman had had these ex parte 
contacts. So now they're not able to, they're, they're able to say not just, look, this case is shakier than a lot of people may have realized. They're able to say the judge committed misconduct. And that's that's powerful. It really did. There were calls for Judge Kaufman's impeachment. There were calls for hearings. There was a letter by 100 plus law professors. There were articles in the New York Times. And Judge Kaufman was really under siege then. Um, he had to, he was, for example, he was going to give a speech at Pomona College, um, a commencement address. He had to cancel that because it looked like there were going to be demonstrations. It's a real foreshadowing of some of the some of the free speech on campus arguments um, and controversies we see today. There were pickets. He would go give a speech at a legal aid society dinner, that sort of thing. And there were pickets there waiting for him. Um, there, it bled into his social life. The, the, I, I interviewed the Mirpoles, Michael Mirpole, um, one of the two sons, and he told me that someone had written him a letter saying he'd seen Judge Kaufman at a party and spilled wine on him. And, and muttered to himself, that's for Julius and Ethel. So it, it, it infected his social life. He went to a dinner party and one of, the, one of the women there accosted him and said, why did you give him the death sentence? You know, and he sort of stammered and gave an expl explanation. So it, all of this was reminiscent for him of what had happened in 51, 52, 53. He'd experienced back then when it was a live controversy, and especially in the months leading up to the executions, when there was a real move for clemency and pickets at the White House and elsewhere, He'd experienced death threats, bomb threats. He'd had to flee his apartment um, on the eve of the execution because there were so many bomb threats. The FBI was constantly sweeping the apartment. He was under guard. His kids were under guard. So it, it, all that went away after 53, but it, it sort of came back in, in a fashion um, in the 70s. And, and really, it was a real tragedy in a sense for him. I don't, I'm not saying it was undeserved. At some level, it wasn't undeserved um, given how he behaved in the trial and the view of many that the sentences were excessive, but it was it was a surprise for sure. Interesting. And what's fascinating is, so there's this, there's a backlash and then there's a, as far as, uh, you know, saving face or, or clearing one's name, you have the Rosenberg children trying to clear their family name. Then you have Judge Kaufman trying to save face on his part. And how do yeah. we, he's being accosted at parties, clear, and he's an upwardly mobile gentleman, which he clearly was, how is he going to square the circle of that? And so what I think is fascinating is that he became something that few predicted, that he became one of the most progressive judges of his time. There's a line, great line in your book where you say, grace withheld from the Rosenbergs overflowed towards others, the weak, the excluded, the unpopular. Tell us about these path-breaking decisions that he was responsible for. Right. I mean, that that's one of the great ironies of this story is that he did become a leading progressive judge in his day. And he got he got very little forgiveness from the Rosenberg oriented critics for that. They viewed it as, as a sort of sham, you know, a, a cheap attempt at atonement, a cheap attempt to stay in the good graces of elite liberal Jewish Upper East Side society, which he was very much a member of, um, an attempt to remain on great terms with the New York Times. He was friendly with the publisher of the Times, Salzberger, and, and the executive editor there, Ian Rosenthal. And so that was that was kind of a, the theory on it. That was a book on him, is that, that this was this was a facade uh, of atonement. Um, and so I argue in the book, it, it's, it's, it's really deeper than that. So yeah, let me describe some of those decisions. He was the first judge to desegregate a school in the North. Um, that was in 1960, uh, 61. It was in New Rochelle, New York. Fascinating case. And, you know, there had been a number of those cases, and they were growing in the South, of course, but that was the first one in the North, which raised a whole 
different set of issues because there the, seg the, the segregation was less based on uh, de jure law and more on de facto residential patterns and, and things of that nature. Um, so in some ways, it was a sort of harder case to cut through than the very crude and obvious segregation in the South. In prison condition cases, he became quite liberal. So there was a case arising out of the Metropolitan Correction Center. A whole host of conditions were challenged by defendants, um, including body cavity searches, which had become essentially routine almost. Um, and he, he invalidated those um, and found them a violation of constitutional rights. Supreme Court overruled him. In First Amendment cases, he became a sort of leading proponent of freedom of the press, freedom of the individual to dissent. So in the Pentagon Papers case, which went through the Second Circuit on its way to the Supreme Court, he was one of the minority who argued for immediate publication, whereas the Second Circuit actually continued a pause on publication for a lot of the items and sent it back to the district judge. Now, they were overruled by the Supreme Court a couple of days later, agreeing with Judge Kaufman. Judge Kaufman innovated a couple of interesting privileges that, again, don't they've been cut back on uh, by the Supreme Court. One was for reporters to be able to discuss uh, and deliberate about their articles among editors and not have to reveal that in a libel suit. That arose out of a very well-publicized big case uh, brought against 60 Minutes by a former officer in Vietnam. He came up with something called the neutral reportage privilege, which has been in the news lately because it was going to be what Fox News was going to rely on. Fox News was going to say, in defense, legally anyway, of its of the defamation case arising out of the voting machines that, uh, look, we're allowed as reporters to report on this controversy. We're not endorsing what President Trump might say about voting machines or his acolytes might say. We're just we're just neutrally reporting. Well, that you can disagree with that. But that concept that a news outlet or reporter is not liable for the truth or falsity of the thing they're reporting on, that comes from a case against the New York Times brought, the, brought by the Ottoman Society uh, that Judge Kaufman decided. He was the judge who decided that John Lennon could stay in America. Uh, John Lennon was the target of a, of a sort of politically motivated bogus deportation campaign by Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell, aided and abetted by Strom Thurmond. Um, they wanted to get Lenin because Lenin, leading up to the 72 election, was doing going around trying to organize the youth vote. It was the first election where 18-year-olds 18 could vote. So they wanted to retaliate. Lenin had been here on a series of visas, and they discovered this sort of old drug conviction he'd pled guilty to in England. And they argued that that made him ineligible to remain in America on this visa, even though he'd been here. That had been automatically renewed, you know, period after period. And Judge Kaufman found that that was unconstitutional, that the, the conviction in England didn't live up to American due process standards. But Kaufman also understood what was really going on, that it was politically motivated. And he had a line in the decision saying, we take very seriously this idea that the deportation laws would be used as a tool of political retaliation. And then finally, one, one last case I'll mention, there, there are lots of others, but he sort of dusted off a law from 1789 uh, in a case brought by a Paraguayan family against a Paraguayan police officer who had tortured and killed the son of a leading dissident in Paraguay in the 1970s. And that, that person came to the United States, the, the police colonel who did that came to the United States. And when the family in Paraguay learned that, they came to the United States and brought a lawsuit against him under the what's called the Alien Tort Statute, um, passed as part of the very first set of laws governing the judiciary in 1789. That law makes it a tort such, such that you can sue in federal court for a violation of what's called the law of nations. Uh, well, in this case, Judge Kaufman became the first judge to interpret that phrase, the law of nations, 
to embrace all of these growing human rights treaties and human rights norms that had, that had sort of grown up after World War II. So it's a real landmark decision allowing people who'd been human rights victims anywhere in the world, in theory, to sue their oppressors as long as there was jurisdiction over them here in the United States, which in that case there was because he was here. That gave birth to really a whole area of law, like a number, a wave of lawsuits in the 80s and 90s based on human rights violations, for example, out of the Bosnian War. A lot of the Holocaust remuneration litigation was based on that. It was suits against the Marcos family. Um, and then starting in the 90s into the 2000s, a new kind of lawsuit against American corporations and multinational corporations for misdeeds abroad. And like a lot of what Judge Kaufman did, that was too liberal for the Supreme Court, the increasingly conservative Supreme Court, which in a series of decisions starting in the early 2000s and culminating in just the last couple of years, they've almost eliminated that whole area of liability. But fascinatingly, it, it, Judge Kaufman's innovation went beyond the U.S. It, it gave birth to this concept of universal jurisdiction um, around the world. So, for example, in Spain, there was a judge for a long time who um, would he prosecuted Pinochet and he prosecuted other human rights abusers in places having nothing to do with Spain. And he was calling on this principle of universal jurisdiction, which Judge Kaufman had helped innovate in that decision in America in the late 70s and 80s. Wow, it's such a fascinating transition. Here he is in the 50s as, you know, the spokesperson for the government and we're going to really lay down the law. And now he's going against the government. It's, it's right. fascinating. So now the, what's what's also interesting is that you, you know, he was very obviously a very public figure and these decisions are very public with long standing ramifications down the line in a very positive way. But you also go into his family life, which was very troubled. And what was the connection between his private life and then these public decisions? Right. He, he did have a troubled family life, quite sad in a lot of ways. He had three kids. Um, they suffered from substance abuse and mental illness. One of them died at 38 on a hiking trip to Peru, but there was some suggestion that, that drugs might have been involved, and there's no question he had a bit of a, a drug problem. Um, he had another son who had even greater substance abuse and suffered from Munchausen disease and ended up losing the limb because of that and, and just being really only partially able to function. Um, he had a third son who was institutionalized on and off and with severe mental illness. That son also predeceased him. His wife had attempted suicide, also substance abuse, alcohol problems, pain addiction problems, suffer, seemed to suffer from anorexia. So these are all, obviously these are, these are serious, serious, no doubt deep-seated ailments and that it would be facile to trace them you know, too closely to any one cause. But the relatives I spoke to did link them to some degree to a couple of things, you know, beyond simply genetics and beyond simply the, the environmental causes for those kinds of issues that, that you know, we're all kind of aware of. They, they thought the Rosenberg controversy might have had something to do with it. And that's because the family sort of lived under siege for a long time. There was a quote from his daughter-in-law who said, sort of paraphrasing here, but basically what she said was like, how do you have a normal childhood when your father is trying the Rosenbergs, you know? And, and what they mean is that they were under guard a lot. They were sort of special wards almost or projects of the FBI. One of his sons was at Syracuse in 1958-59 when Judge Kaufman was presiding over a kind of well-known mafia case as a, he was still a trial judge at that stage. 
And that son received a death threat um, in college. Now it might've been, you know, no one knows where it might've been a prank. No one really knows where it came from. It's hard, it's impossible to know if it was a serious threat, but of course, given the history, it was taken seriously. Um, and the FBI immediately, you know, investigated and went and guarded him. And, and so there, there was all of that. He also had a quite difficult personality, Judge Kaufman. He was prickly. He was extremely demanding. He was a bit tyrannical, both to law clerks, uh, famously so, but but also to his kids. It didn't seem very different. It wasn't, he was kind of father who just wasn't satisfied and, and believed that the way for them, for his kids to succeed was to drive them toward success. Um, you know, he'd been extremely driven. And so by the time he has kids, the family's prosperous. They're living on Park Avenue. They're quite well to do. And there, there's a sort of sense that since, in, you know, general circumstances aren't going to drive his kids the way he was driven by poverty and, and being second generation here in the U.S., that he had to sort of supply the, the impetus and the incentive. And, you know, he, as a person who needed to be in control, who needed to be almost to dominate when things in his life seemed out of control, like this larger controversy that besieged him, you know, he he arguably sort of retaliated by tightening the screws all the harder. And, and grandchildren of this this middle generation who'd done so, who had such affliction, you know, they believed that, that their father's way of being a dad, you know, couldn't have helped those kids uh, with their illnesses and their other issues. So, you know, it's all it's all sort of armchair psychology. It's hard to know, but but they the, the family life was tragic in some ways. Wow, wow. Well, you mentioned armchair psychology, you but you also have firsthand experience. You were, as you mentioned, you were as his uh, Kaufman's last law clerk, and the book opens up on your experience at his funeral. Tell us about some of the experiences you had and your impressions of the judge. Yeah, so so the judge the judge could be extremely hard. And I had a fairly atypical experience, actually, because when I started working for him, which was August of 1991, he wasn't in the office. He was coming back from vacation. And then he came back at the end of August. And within a couple of months, he was declining in health. And he, he died in February of 1992. So I only saw sort of glimpses of what we might call the Kaufman treatment, uh, which is like sometimes like his kids, clerks couldn't measure up re re sort of regardless of what they did. And some of that, you know, the, the I interviewed about 50 former law clerks and uh, some of them thought it was his insecurity. He'd gone to Fordham. He hired clerks only from Harvard, Columbia, Yale and Stanford. He used to call them Harvard sort of derisively. If you'd gone to Harvard, he would call you Harvard in a sort of sarcastic way. He had this tradition every year uh, when the new clerks would start over the summer, he, they would write their first draft opinion for him and he would look it over, call them back into his office an hour later and be marked up with red pen and he'd physically throw it at them and say, in essence, and I'm going to amend this because I assume this is a family podcast, he'd say, this is terrible, except he didn't use the word terrible. And, you know, a lot of clerks were, were really discombobulated by this. Many of them quit over the years. Um, he He would... Judge Kaufman would erupt sort of irrationally, he would fire them, even though you were kind of supposed to know when he fired you that he didn't really, you know, most of the time he hadn't really fired you. Sometimes he'd fire you and you would not come in the next day. You would think, well, that's terrible. I've been fired by my judge. How do I explain that to future employers? What do I put on my resume? You know, but at least I don't ever have to see the guy again. And then you'd get a call from Chambers and he'd be where, you know, he'd be screaming like, where are you? And you'd say, well, Judge, you know, don't you remember you, you you fired me yesterday? And he said, no, I didn't get in here. You know, you're behind. Get in, you need to get in here. 
so he was just he was just sort of impossible to predict that way and he had he also again grandchildren told me he did this in his family he would play them off against one another so he for many years he had two clerks and then in the 1970s because he was chief judge he had three clerks and the way the, the way the office worked is you sat in a kind of ante room and he was in the, the big sort of office and back and he would buzz you in with a buzzer and the, the the clerk who was in his best graces was clerk number one you get one buzz and you have to run right in and I have clerks tell me Mike you know I still hear that buzzer in my nightmares you know that just is because you had to you you had to be in there within three seconds whatever you were doing you're on the phone in the middle of a thought writing a sentence you'd like drop it and get in there he, he, if you wanted to talk to the second clerk, there'd be two buzzes, um, and he'd ask for the second clerk. And the third clerk was in such a deep doghouse that he didn't even get buzzed in. And and in front, and it was it was you, you were kind of in for some humiliating treatment if you were the third clerk because sometimes he wouldn't talk to you. He would just he would talk to the first clerk and he'd say, "Tell him such and such." He would just sort of he'd kind of like freeze you out. So I mean, I just I heard all kinds of crazy stories. One one the the woman who started who was the law clerk right before me you know, just couldn't take this treatment as, as a lot of people couldn't. And she would go to the bathroom and she'd cry a lot. And so eventually the judge noticed her absence and, and said to the number one clerk, you know, where is she? And he'd say, well, she's in the bathroom, judge. And he would, he began to think that she must be drinking too much water. So he banned water from chambers uh, for a while. <laughs> so it's just, he was just one of these sort of old school, tyrannical, um, unpredictable, grenade waiting to explode sort of bosses. And these days, I, I don't think, I'm not sure you can get away with a 40 year run of that. Back then, you know, it was just a, like you're a little more unreviewable to use a legal term, right? So he did get away with it. One year, I'll tell you one last story there. One year, it embarrassed him in the, in the 1980s. All three of his clerks quit at the same time. And that actually made the papers and, and was kind of humiliating for him. And the only time that ever happened. Because clerks, however badly they're treated, if it's a one-year job, so you, and you're going on to a law firm, and you're going to put it on your resume, and it's kind of feather in your cap to have as a young lawyer, and, and you have every incentive just to stick it out, and just, you know, even if the judge is never going to talk to you again or give you a reference, like, at least you can just get out of there. So, so for someone to quit just shows you how bad and unendurable it really kind of was. So, anyway. Difficult guy, but but you know what he wanted could also be a prince when he wanted to, which usually was not with law clerk, but he could be funny, he could be charming, gregarious. Uh, there was that side of him too, for sure. Yeah, he, he wouldn't have gotten where he was if he was just completely. No, no, yeah. no, not at all. And and he, as I said, he was in his earlier days when he was kind of flattering his way to the top, in addition to accomplishing his way to the top. But he did both. You know, he 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 was quite quite warm, quite social, and he had you know he had like. He had some close friends, and 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 to his friends, he was he was loyal, and even to a small number of clerks who kind of managed to graduate the Kaufman boot camp and and get into his good graces. For those relatively small number, he would add you know avidly promote their careers and stay in touch. So you know he he could he could be that way. He just didn't want to much of the time. <laughs> well, we're so glad that you were a clerk under him. And <laughs> I think that, you know, I don't think this book would have existed if that didn't happen. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> so we're, we're very grateful for that. You, you know, you have a, a personal experience, and we're grateful that you shared that with us as well as in the book. But also you did a really deep, in-depth look, interviewing dozens of people and really getting down to the bottom of his story and a fascinating story that we encourage all the listeners to read. Uh, it just was given a, a really glowing review in the New York Review of Books. So yes, thanks. 
The great read, Judgment and Mercy, the Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs. It was great talking with you, Martin. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. That was Martin Siegel, author of Judgment and Mercy, the Turbulent Life and Times of the Judge Who Condemned the Rosenbergs. If you'd like to purchase Martin's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.